Hello everyone, my name is Nicole. And I'm Tianhua. And we are the Diploid Duo. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast where we discuss about new and exciting frontiers in biological research. Welcome back everyone to the Diploid Duo. And uh, I hope you're ready because you're in for a treat. Today's episode will be a sequel to the first. Uh, we will be continuing our discussion about the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, because we realize that there are still many concerns and questions from people around us about the vaccines. That's why we would like to address more of these questions as best as we can. Um, but that's, you know, not all that we have had prepared for today. We have on our show a very special guest, an expert in the field, to help us answer all your questions about the vaccine and to also let us in uh, on some information about the upcoming vaccine called Luna COVID-19. If you have not listened to our first episode, you should totally check it out before continuing with today's show. Yes, welcome back everyone to our show. The fact that we are currently in the midst of the pandemic highlights the importance of combating against not just the virus, but also the rampant spread of misinformation. And to the best of our abilities, shall provide more clarity and understanding about the vaccine, which is something that is relevant to us all. Yes, that is just so important. And with that, Tianhua, please... Introduce our guest to our listeners. Alright, today we have invited Professor Wee In Yong onto the show. Prof Wee co-directs the Viral Research and Experimental Medicine Centre at the Sing Health Duke NUS Academic Medical Centre. He is also a professor at Saw Sui Hock School of Public Health and the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the National University of Singapore. Prof Wee will be joining us in addressing both the public concerns and also to share with us about the Luna COVID-19 vaccine he's co-developing together with American pharmaceutical company Arteris Therapeutics. Hi Prof Wee, welcome to our show and thank you so much for being our first guest. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I would like to kickstart today's um, show with a brief discussion about the public's reception and even aversion towards vaccine uh, in Singapore. As of March 1st, um, according to the Ministry of Health in Singapore, approximately half a million doses of uh, vaccines have been administered, with slightly over 200,000 um, people uh, having actually completed the full vaccine uh, regimen. Also, a very informal survey done by the news outlet Asia One showed that about 36.7% uh, of the population uh, stated that they are ready to be vaccinated. And the two, the two most common reasons cited by people um, that uh, uh, explaining why they are actually d deterred towards like taking the vaccine uh, are probably like concerns about unknown long-term side effects and also the lack of confidence pertaining to how well tested the vaccines are. So Prof Wee, would you like to start by um, giving us your take on this issue? Yes, thanks very much. Um... Uh, th these are definitely valid, valid concerns in the sense that, you know, we've taken, what, 11 months to finish development from uh, a vaccine from beginning all the way through complete, completing clinical trial, phase three clinical trial, and then getting it licensed when typically this journey would take somewhere, you know, usually more than 10 years. So I think that that's probably the, um, uh, the disconnect sense that rush things. 
so uh, let me take your second question first and I'll come back to the first. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer to whether you know there were shortcuts taken and whether what we've done is safe and all that is simple. Uh, there is no shortcut. We Everything that had to be done for uh, to show that the vaccine is safe and that the vaccine work all been done. Uh, usually why you know the, the normal vaccine development takes you know 10 years or more is because we do these studies uh, one after another. So in series, right, if you like. So let's say, for example, we show that develop uh, several candidate vaccines, and then you test them in the say you know in a test tube in the lab and all that, and then you pick one or two that looks promising, and then then after that you start the next stage, and then after you complete that stage, then you whatever that looks promising, then you pick that, and then you go, and it, it, it's in this kind of uh, very iterative kind of a fashion. But because of the pandemic, a lot of uh, companies, including us, in partnership with Arcturus, did all these studies in parallel. So whatever that could be done simultaneously was done simultaneously so instead of stretching all the studies out lining them one by one all brought them all together and did it as fast as we could so the the risk actually was not to compromise safety the risk was actually a financial risk the reason why companies like to lay them out one after another is because anything fails stop the development without committing to the cost of all the downstream studies when you do it in parallel you, you've actually effectively started the study or you even know whether the vaccine would work so actually, the, the, the risk of, of rapid uh, development is a financial risk. It's not so much a safety. Bear in mind also that RNA vaccines were actually, um, has actually been in the research uh, um, arena for well over 20 years, right? People have been thinking about using RNA as a form of vaccine for a long time, just that it didn't work very well. Uh, and one of the reasons why it didn't work very well is because our body degrades RNA very rapidly. So it wasn't until the development of the lipid nanoparticle to package the RNA that we could then put um, these vaccines um, effectively to the body. Then, of course, after that, you know, we learned more about RNA patients, RNA replication. So, so it's, it's actually based on a lot of research work. It was not something invented overnight. That when the vaccine is licensed, it's not because it's, uh, you know, for the sake of getting something out. Actually, the health authorities like Singapore, the Health Sciences Authority in in the US, the FDA in Europe, and the European Medicines Agency, everything, um, look at the entire package and they need to be satisfied that whatever that we've developed was safe and it would work before they would even license it. Yeah, I think it's definitely reassuring to know that proper safety regulations are put in place by FDA and also HSA in Singapore. And um, personally, I really think that the government, uh, you know, do recognises the importance of effective communication between the governmental leaders and the public. Uh, and I think on that note in Singapore, you know, to encourage the take-up of COVID-19 vaccinations, Health Minister Gan Kim Yong, he revealed that government officials will be going door-to-door to explain the importance of the vaccines and even help make people make online bookings for their vaccinations. Yeah, I think that is actually really incredible. I mean, we do actually also see this pattern being reflected here in the US where the public is uh, pretty much divided uh, at, at this point in time over the willingness to be vaccinated. A study conducted by the Pew Research Center showed that about half of the US adults indicated that they would probably get a vaccine to prevent uh, COVID-19 and the other half feels otherwise. In fact, the willingness have actually dropped from 72% uh, when the survey was first done in May 2020. Um, you know, like, and it actually dropped like about 20-something percent. So, 
many people were noted to be also similarly concerned about the fast development of the vaccine and uh, clinical trial process. And, and um, you know, like e- even though most of the people indicated in the same survey that they would really like life to go back to normalcy. So, um, Prof, would you have any comment about the, um, you know, the concern about the long-term side effects of, of the vaccine? Um, so the, the long-term side effects that uh, people sometimes wonder about is basically, you know, I have to say, first of all, that it was based largely on very flawed research, right? Um, the idea that the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine or MMR uh, can give rise to neurological problems like autism and all that, um, and therefore that constitutes a long-term side effect, it is, is, uh, has since been disproven. Now, there is maybe in, instead of a long-term, a uh, mid-term. The reason why I call it mid-term is because, you know, you have those that side effects that manifest um, almost uh, immediately or within the first three days after you receive the vaccine. And then you have another set of, uh, you know, very rare complications that maybe happen within the next few weeks. So usually by about six weeks after vaccination, if it does show, it will show, have shown up by then. If not, it, there'll, there'll be nothing. Um, so you don't have like, you know, you get vaccinated today, then three years later, you develop some, some side effect that, that doesn't really exist. Now, the midterm uh, complications are things like your, um, where your, it's, it's nothing to do with the vaccine. It's rather your immune response to the vaccine and certainly the same thing would happen if you get infected with the, the virus as well. The, the immune response then attacks some part of your body, a little bit like an autoimmune disease, right? So for instance, it's quite well known with uh, influenza uh, and some other diseases like even Zika uh, that the uh, immune response to these viruses then somehow also react against the sheath that surrounds your nerves. So it looks like an insulator and that destroys the, you know, it compromises the sheath, the function of the sheath, and therefore you, you then get neurological problems like paralysis and all that, which can be reversed uh, um, both treatment as well as uh, just supportive care. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's uh, the most, um, you know, wor- some of the more worrying uh, complications. But having said that, it is very rare, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the idea of these um, so-called whatever long-term side effects there are has to be balanced with the long COVID that you can get with natural uh, SARS coronavirus 2 infection, where for up to six months or, or even longer now, uh, people experience very debilitating um, tiredness, uh, inability to concentrate, so they can't function like they normally do. That's going to reduce their productivity, you know, the potential in terms of their career and all that. So that, that in itself is also a, a major problem. So the, any concerns about long side effects, which as I said is extremely rare, should, should be balanced against the, the consequence of getting a natural SARS-CoV-2 infection. Okay, thank you so much, Prof. Wee, for your input. Um, I would like now for us collectively to try to answer some really extri- uh, some really good um, and important questions submitted by uh, our listeners. Hello, Nico and Tianhua. I've got two questions. The first question is, how long will the protection comfort by the vaccine last? And the second question is, is there a difference between the period of effectiveness between the vaccines? Does COVID-19 vaccine pose more health risks than flu vaccines? What do you think about Sinovac? 
Thank you so much for submitting these questions to us. Um, I think I'll take on the first question. How long would the protection conferred by the vaccine last? Um, this is a very good question and um, the answer is still unknown, but let me just provide some statistics. Uh, based on the data collected from Pfizer, BioNTech, as well as Moderna, the efficacy of the vaccines in preventing symptomatic COVID-19 after completing the vaccine regime is about 95%. Uh, as for Moderna vaccine, studies have been done to show that the antibodies produced after vaccination remain in high levels for up to three months. But data informing us about the exact duration of protection that the vaccines will provide us uh, are still unavailable. Um, Prof, do you, you know, have anything to add to that? Uh, how long the immunity is going to last and whether there's a need for booster vaccination and all that is still something that's not known. So in reality, you don't really need to know how long immunity lasts for. Because once you implement vaccination, the public health system still carry out surveillance on these diseases. So for instance, in Singapore, we still monitor measles, mumps and rubella, even though you know our coverage rate for MMR is, is as close as 95%, right? Uh, we monitor for um, you know tetanus, we monitor for uh, whooping cough and all that, even, all, even though all our children are vaccinated against these diseases. So it doesn't mean that just because there's a vaccine, therefore the Ministry of Health will switch off and not do anything. There will be monitoring. Okay. For the second okay. question, um, does the period of effectiveness vary between vaccines? Um, I think for now, all we know is that the clinical trial data shows that the vaccines are effective with obviously varying uh, efficacy levels upon the completion of uh, whatever uh, vaccination uh, regime the company um, uh, mandates. Uh, but according to the data for at least the Pfizer and Moderna trials, protection kicks in about 14 days after the first dose. But once again, as to how long they are effective in protecting us is still relatively unknown. Prof, wait, do you have anything you would like to add to that? Um, no, I, I think you've, you've uh, basically covered it very well. Uh, so... Uh, there is a difference between efficacy and effectiveness, of course. Um, efficacy is what we do in a, what we can measure in a clinical trial. And clinical trial is a very controlled um, situation where you know you only you you have a set of criteria that look for in your participants. So if they don't fit the criteria, you usually we don't we don't we go, we don't re recruit them um, for various reasons, mostly safety. Effectiveness is real life uh, situation. So can I just say, add on to this, um, can I say that? So in effectiveness might actually drop as compared yes. to efficacy, right? So we shouldn't yes. be too alarmed when yes. we see effectiveness dropping, That's right? right? Okay, right. That's Thank right. you. All right. Okay, so the third question that we have, does COVID-19 vaccines pose more health risks than flu vaccines? Um, actually, no. According to the CDC, which is also the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the common side effects from the flu shot is similar to that of the COVID-19 vaccine, such as soreness, fever, fatigue, and muscle aches. Severe allergic reactions to both vaccines are rare. Of course, one important thing to take note of is that the technologies that are used in both the vaccines are different and that these two viruses have very different attack rates and behavioral patterns as well. Alright, fourth question. What is your take on Sinovac? I think 
the question is stemming from the information we see online about how Sinovac is only 50.4% effective according to a study that was done in Brazil. Uh, and also recently, you know, Hong Kong reported that Sinovac is 62.3% effective. Whereas, you know, in comparison, Israel, they reported that Pfizer is 92% effective. Um, I think it is the efficacy gap that concerns the public. Prof Wee, what is your take on this? The good, the good thing about the RNA vaccine, of course, is that it, it actually makes the spike protein of the virus inside the body. So uh, what I mean by that is this, right? So if you think about it, the, the SARS coronavirus 2 its genome is RNA, it's got an RNA genome, and then it's surrounded by a coat of protein, one of which is a spike protein. And you think of it like this, that the virus, when it's outside of the body, it can't do anything. It needs to get inside the body, and the spike is the key to getting into the body. And so, the, the, like any key, the key needs to slot into the lock, and it needs to be able to turn the lock. Once it's inside, the RNA is then released in, into our cells, and then it starts replicating itself. So, so that's critical for the uh, virus because without doing that, it, it, it can't, it's dead, right? It's become extinct. So it needs to replicate and then make um, progenies of itself uh, and then uh, perpetuate itself. So therefore, for our immune system to uh, protect us from SARS coronavirus 2, we need to recognize the key. Because if we can block the key from slotting in the lock, then the game is won. Right? But, and that's what all vaccines do, including Sinovac. So you're basically showing the body what a key looks like. But with Sinovac, that's all it does. It shows you what a key looks like. With the RNA vaccine, because the key is made inside the cell, then you actually see um, how the key is made. So, so, and you know which cell is making the key. So in other words, instead of just blocking the virus from getting into your, into your body, the immune system now is able to recognize which part of your body has the virus. So that in the event that the antibody levels are not high enough to block virus from getting in, killer cells, which, which can peer inside the cell in, 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 as an analogy, killer cells can recognize that there is something wrong. Something is already inside your cell and then kill those cells so that prevent the virus from spreading any further. Um, and that's what RNA vaccines do. They, they generate both antibodies as well as the killer cells. Whereas um, for vaccines like Sinovac, because it, it is a static picture, all you see is the key, then it, you, you can't, the immune system cannot learn what an infected cell would look like. Um, and therefore, that's why its efficacy is lower. We also know from past uh, other vaccines like influenza, like uh, the inactivated form of Japanese encephalitis vaccines, that these form of vaccines don't give long-term immunity. You keep having to get booster shots. Just because of antibodies or is it because of T-cells? You know, we still need to work that out. Okay, now uh, let us all continue to address more general questions uh, people have about the vaccines. Question number one. Will I still get COVID-19 infection after I receive the vaccine or will the vaccine only protect me from symptomatic infection? Oh, that's a good question. I think I can understand uh, where you're coming from. In response to that question, um, Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines were shown to be about 95% effective in preventing symptomatic disease, which means to say some may still be vulnerable to infections. 
However, you know, right now, there's no evidence that any of the current COVID-19 vaccines can completely stop people from being infected. We are still waiting for further information on whether vaccination will be able to prevent the transmission of infection. Prof. Wee, what are your thoughts? The early indications uh, from um, uh, observations of vaccinated populations, especially those in Israel where, you know, the uh, the vaccine rollout has been the fastest, suggests that there's also reduction in transmission. The reason why this remains a question is because actually it is very difficult to do this in a clinical trial. So the phase three clinical trial for both, you know, for Pfizer was uh, close to 40,000, Moderna was uh, of 30 of a thousand. Um, it is very hard to go and test everybody to see whether they've been infected with SARS coronavirus 2. Uh, and then to know whether the vaccine can stop that, right? So the the more practical way is just to detect cases. So once you have a case, you test uh, and confirm that it is in that indeed COVID nineteen. Why the efficacy is against symptomatic infection? Uh, to test for infection in totality, you both need to you know try and do like weekly swaps or anything or something like that, or you test for antibodies and just that this person has been um, exposed. Uh, to the coronavirus. Um, but at the same time, you know, just testing for exposure isn't good enough because sometimes people cannot remember they've, they've actually had symptoms, right? And so that, that's where it's very complicated. So it is a point in time where we need to roll out a vaccine fast. And literally, actually, as long as the vaccine can prevent hospitalization, that's good enough because that's the bottleneck in our healthcare system, right? That it overwhelms the system. Too many people need ICU and all that. And so then when access is limited, uh, get a complication and, and death rate becomes high. So literally, I think if, if a vaccine can prevent hospitalization, that's actually workable already. Uh, the fact that both Pfizer and the, the RNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna and others have shown that they can actually prevent even symptomatic infection. That's a very, very good thing. Um, so what does it mean when we cannot prevent infection? So if you are vaccinated, you can still nonetheless be infected with SARS coronavirus 2, then potentially you could still transmit this virus on. And that will be true, except that I think not the transmission rate will nonetheless be reduced because um, without coughing and sneezing and all that, you're not going to expel the virus. So yes, you, you can still, you know, your hands or whatever is liver, if you sing and all that, you might still transmit. But it's not as um, effective a mode of transmission if the, to if you were coughing. And then more people will then be exposed to the virus. So I think overall, the effect of vaccination on transmission will be that it will reduce transmission. It may not completely eliminate it, but it will reduce transmission. Right. All right. Thank you. So, um, next question: Will mRNA vaccines interact or even mutate my DNA in any way? So, I think this is a a very valid concern. Uh, but the answer is no. Uh, firstly, mRNA is different from DNA, and there is almost no way that the mRNA is able to exert any changes to uh, our DNA. Uh, mRNA also does not enter the nucleus, which is where the DNA is. Um, in addition, uh, mRNA has a shelf life of an average of uh, 48 hours in our body, so they will not last forever. Um, ultimately, they will be degraded by um, a variety of proteins and enzymes in our cells. 
Next question. If I don't get my second dose on time, what happens? Do not panic. CDC has gone on record to state that you can safely get the second dose about 42 days out for Moderna and Pfizer. However, it is still recommended to try to reschedule a day that's closer to the date if you miss the second dose. Um, you know, during the clinical trials performed for both vaccines, um, there were statistics that showed that there are some, but not many, who didn't receive the second dose of vaccine on time. But the sample size, however, is still insufficient to make any definite conclusions. Of course, we know that the vaccine was and is still being developed with the utmost stringency. However, due to the rapid rollout, most people can't help but wonder what are some of the safety regulations the companies themselves and also bodies such as HSA and FDA put in place to ensure the safety of the vaccines. Prof, we would like to address these concerns. Um, yes, besides what I said earlier about the way it was developed, and, um, HSA and other health regulators continue to monitor quality of these vaccines, right? So, for instance, now they will be thinking about lot-to-lot variation. Vaccines are made in batches, uh, and so therefore in lots. And so sometimes because of processes, slight changes in temperature, or you know, uh, can have some subtle variations on quality of the vaccine. So, so you know, health authorities also look into lot-to-lot variations, right, and to make sure that they are all equivalent. So, you know, there's a lot of monitoring and checks that go on in the background. Of course, one important thing to note is that the study of the safety and potency of the vaccine are carried out in parallel, which accelerates the process instead of in series, which is the conventional way of doing so. Alright, now uh, we would like to move on to more scientific questions um, about the vaccine. Yes, this is the part where I'm really excited about. So um, I think probably uh, we would like you to uh, actively answer our questions, <laughs> our scientific questions. Um, so the first one is, um, so yeah, I think earlier you mentioned a little bit about this as well, you know, like the mRNA vaccine, how it works is, you know, essentially our cells take up the mRNA and produce the actual virus spike protein. Um, so I think one question is, can our cells collectively produce enough, I think quote-unquote enough, right, uh, of this spike protein um, such that it is sufficient to mount a, a good amount of, a good level of immune response um, um, after the first dose of vaccine? So it's a great question. Let's, um, uh, let me answer this in two ways. One is um, if you look at the phase three trial results of both Pfizer's and Moderna's vaccine, Although these vaccines were um, designed as a two-dose vaccine for Pfizer given 21 days apart, for Moderna given 28 days apart, in both instances, the efficacy in preventing COVID-19 cases started 12 days after this dose. So if you look at the data, uh, so this is the Captain Mike. so you imagine two lines going in side by side and in parallel with each other. Um, and then after 12 days, one diverged and flattened out, whereas the placebo group continued to climb. It's, and, and, and so, you know, we, we have looked at that. So in, in Singapore, we, we've looked at that. And this, um, what happens is that at, at around day 10, um, we can measure almost everyone with uh, uh, vaccination, with, uh, who received the vaccines, have developed T-cells against uh, the spike protein. Uh, and 
um, 80, 80 to 85 percent of them have developed antibodies against the spike protein. Um, now, of course, these are not neutralizing, um, which only comes up after the second dose. But nonetheless, you already see the efficacy, which actually might suggest that you maybe we don't need neutralizing antibodies to protect against uh, COVID-19. You just need total antibodies. Because antibodies, besides neutralizing the virus, also trigger other functions of the antibody, right? So, for, for example, complement activation, and cell activity, uh, and phagocytosis. Mm. So maybe those functions are as important uh, and, may, and may be sufficient without neutralization. Uh, so maybe it's in combination, whether it's one on its own or not, we don't know. So that's, that's one line of uh, suggestion that uh, although the expression may be transient, it is sufficient to elicit efficacy. Second, um, the second uh, uh, line of um, evidence that this may be sufficient comes from studies on T cells. So um, in the UK, they did this study where they, fought, they recruited over 3,000 frontline workers. So, um, and then they followed it up, them up for six months and to know who got COVID and who did not. When they analyzed the data, they found that those people who did not get COVID over the uh, um, six month period at higher levels of T cell and from, from other coronavirus infections. But somehow they actually recognize SARS-CoV-2 at least react. And depending on the count, if it's high enough, you actually they don't actually do get COVID-19. Whereas those with low T cell count, they go on to get COVID. And these people have no antibodies, which suggests that maybe T cells alone can already affect them. The final uh, evidence for this comes from an animal experiment. And this is one that we did in our lab. And Luna COVID-19 that, that you referred to, it's a vaccine that we're jointly developing with Arcturus Therapeutics. So it's an RNA vaccine, except that it has a second property that you replicates. Mm. Yeah. Now, in, in, in preclinical studies, it showed very good efficacy after one dose because it, it uses um, antibodies as well as T cells. And then, but because this is an experimental, experimental model, we could um, ask which one is more important. So the way we did that is to deplete either the B cells that produce antibodies or the, the CD8 T cells. If you deplete the B cells, nothing happens. There's still protection. If you deplete the CD8 T cells, then the animals get infected. So again, maybe the T cells are important. So I think we put all this data together and then then and looking at this, the T cell response. And I think the CDCs and the U, what the UK government is doing is probably right that it can wait. You don't need to get a second dose in 21 days. If you delay it, it's not going to be a problem. Yeah, with regards to the difference between the first and second dose, we actually have a question on it. So we'll come to it later. So from based on what you say, you're suggesting that T cells um, have also like a huge importance, right? Because so far, the vaccine development has largely been focusing on neutralizing antibodies yes. and antibodies. So um, I think it's refreshing to hear, I mean, other immunotypes, for instance, T-cell, um, playing a role in the immune defense as well. So the next question is actually what I already just uh, kind of said or asked. Um, why are two doses needed? And could you explain the underlying science behind this? Like, you know, what exactly does the immune system do between the first and the second dose? And you know, why do more symptoms actually show up after the booster shot? Yeah, great, it's a great question. So the, the reason why all, a lot of uh, um, companies 
uh, went for two doses and all that. It's partly driven by uh, the findings from neutralizing antibodies. So the assumption is that, you know, that this came from the early part, right, where we hadn't had enough time to do all the experiments and all the observations. Um, the easiest thing is to assume that you need neutralizing antibodies to protect uh, against the uh, SARS coronavirus 2 infection. It's not an unreasonable assumption because that applies for several other viruses. Um, but of course, you know, although we use that, then you know, kind of uh, shape the vaccine development, at some point we should be um, a little bit circumspect and ask whether actually that assumption is correct. But that's a, a story for another day. So, um, so the reason why they needed two doses is because for many vaccines, after one dose, you neutralizing level, uh, neutralizing antibody levels are not as high as someone who has been infected. I think a lot of the symptoms that we experience after uh, vaccination is because of the immune response. Uh, so it's, it's not surprising, therefore, that you know, when after the second dose, you get a lot more reaction because your immune system has now been primed to recognize the spike protein. And so it would react more rapidly, sometimes more robustly. And since the um, symptoms like we, some people get like uh, the tiredness, uh, funny taste in the mouth and all that. All that is because of an activated immune response. So with regards to this other question, uh, are there any differences between the first and second dose in terms of like the dosage and the components? Yeah. No, they're, they're no. one and the same. All yeah. right, yeah. okay. Um, the next question, what, oh, this is a, actually, I think it's a pretty interesting one. Um, what percentage of the population needs to be vaccinated before reaching herd immunity? Yeah, so the herd immunity is a concept that, you know, as the name would suggest, came from a veterinary application, right? So to protect a, a herd of animals, you only need to vaccinate a certain population. Now, how, a certain percentage of the population, how do you determine that? So back in the start of the COVID-19 epidemic, you, some of you may have heard of this ter this uh, uh, term called R naught, right? Or the basic reproductive rate. It's, it's written as R zero, but it's called R naught. Um, R naught is a number that describes. Let's say, for example, if you have a room with a hundred people inside the room, then one person walks in with a new virus that none of the hundred people are immune to. And the question is, how many people will acquire the infection from this one single person? So for, for SARS coronavirus 2, depending on which part of the world you're in, the answer is somewhere between 1.5 and 3. So let's say we take the worst case scenario and let's take 3. So in other words, one person come in, three people, three people will infected, and then will acquire disease, and then the 3 will pass on to another 9, right? And so it, so if, if the answer is three, then the population that needs to be vaccinated to prevent transmission is 66%. It's, it's actually a very simple way of calculating. You just take one minus one divided by R0. Um, so the larger the R0, the larger the population that you have to vaccinate. The, that, that calculation assumes that immunity stops transmission. So that 66% uh, estimate it has to assume that the vaccine will completely prevent transmission. Now, as I said earlier, you know, we have not established the fact that it may be some level of uh, infection in those who have been vaccinated. It's just that they don't transmit it as well. 
So you're not bringing it down to zero. It's it's you're just reducing it. And therefore, when when Professor Tan Chao Chon was interviewed some months ago about this, uh, I was at Ministry of Health things, and I agree with him. And I think the the number to stop uh, transmission and therefore hurt slightly closer to eighty percent. Mm-hmm. I see. So in a way, like because of um that you remove that assumption, you actually have to increase the uh, percentage in order to compensate for that. Yes. I see. Okay. Um, I think another question um, is what kind of immune response do vaccine developers seek out? I know earlier you briefly mentioned um, about, you know, levels of total antibodies or uh, levels of neutralizing antibodies and also the presence of T cells. Um, is there anything else to add to that list? So, yeah, no, actually, I think for most uh, vaccine developers, they, they, the primary way in which they assess um, um, potency of the vaccine, uh, most use antibodies uh, to me- um, as, a, as a surrogate. I want to say surrogate of immunity, but that's quite right, not quite right. It's, so it, it's, a, it's a measure of immunogenicity, so how well the, the vaccine elicits um, immune response. Um, the reason for the antibody, uh, the use of antibody-based methods is simple it's because it's easy to do. T-cells are a lot harder mm-hmm. and there's no standardized way. So what happens in one lab may not be the same way in how another lab would do it. Um, antibody they use, say, for example, the stain of T-cells may be different. The peptides they use may be different to stimulate the T-cells. So there's no standardized way, whereas for, for antibodies, you know, in ELISA, I mean, there may be variations from lab to lab, but it's easier to standardize these things, right? Um, so there's, uh, moreover, with um, uh, WHO has a lot more experience in trying to standardize uh, uh, antibodies, so convert what would be density reading or a titration into an international unit. And once you convert an international unit, now you can apply it across, you know, at the entire world. Um, but these things have not been for T cells, so maybe that's something that standardized the way we do we measure cells, so that we can bring that in, assess uh, how well a vaccine would work. Mm, I see. That's actually very uh, enlightening because you know, like I guess from a scientist perspective, um, you know, we always want to have as many parameters as possible, right? As many readouts as possible in order to be sure that you know, like, hey, this vaccine actually work, but like. You know, in reality, as you have just described, is is not uh um you know it's not that idealistic in a way that um you know different parameters vary uh different forms of measurement I would say vary between labs and um in order to be a good comparison uh you may only have one measurement which like you said the neutralizing antibody which is easier to sort of uh, normalize or to standardize. Um, rather than um, having like 10 different readouts, but they're all so different and so difficult mm-hmm. to compare. So yeah, I, I think actually that, that's pretty cool. I, I, I learned a lot from that. All right. Um, so the next question I have is, often the words efficacy and safe come in line with vaccines. Could you further elaborate by what scientists define as effective and safe? Yeah, so the... Um, Efficacy, as I said, it comes from a, is, is a term that applies to clinical trials. So the way clinical trials work is this, right? So we have different phases. 
starting from phase one or all the way to phase four. We only heal up the phase three, but actually there's a phase four. Uh, phase one is a very small trial, and basically there, what we the, the trial is trying to achieve is to show that the vaccine can be tolerated. We know it will cause side effects, but the side effects should not be so bad that it will, you know, you need to take medication, you need to take MC and be off work. Um, so you're trying to find a dose of the vaccine that you can give uh, as that would elicit a good immune response. So there is a dose ranging study. And usually the phase one trial is less than 100. Phase two expands on that because phase one will test multiple doses. Phase two, now you can narrow it down to one or two doses that you think is within that sweet spot where you get good immune response and as the, the side effects are. are um, and phase two is going to be now close to a thousand. Because you want act, uh, side effects that happens about one year. Because when a study is fewer than a hundred, then the side effects that happen one in a thousand, you're unlikely going to. So regulators like to see that you have now at least tested about a thousand people. You have a chance of seeing what kind of side effects occur in that size of the population. Uh, phase three then is no longer, is about safety as well, but the primary goal of safety is going to be that it works to prevent disease and that's what. In all these trials, you, you will always recruit those who are healthy at baseline, those who do not have very complicated uh, chronic diseases. Um, and the reason for why we only enroll those and not have the others in, uh, is for, it's a very practical reason. So regulators, uh, one, once and developers to ensure that whatever safety precaution that can be taken at the clinical trial stage are all taken. Who is that any time and every time there is a hospitalization, because the trial is done blinded, you don't know whether the person got placebo or vaccine. Anytime there's a hospitalization, it's an adverse event, as investigation, it's caused by the vaccine, right? So for instance, if let's say you get vaccinated, you're participating in a clinical trial and say you got vaccinated three days later, you Accident on the road, that's an adverse event, right? And sometimes you have to stop because you know person had a perhaps you know was so bad and, and then the trial has to stop because you still have to ask the question: Did this guy faint because of this? Mm -hmm. so so all that um, all that uh, basically add time delays to the trial because you keep having to stop. So to to kind of minimize such events, therefore try and skew the population towards they're healthy and that all well controlled. So those, that's efficacy, and, and, and which is very different from effectiveness. But in terms of the safety, is the idea, the primary, the way we describe safety is the same as how I think public side effects and all that are well tolerated. There's not going to be, there will always be rare, uh, uh, severe side effects like anaphylaxis and all that, but it should not be more common than other. For walking us through the different phases and just to add on before moving on to the clinical trials there are actually pre-clinical trials as well right where we conduct on animals mm -hmm. so i think that the vaccine development is i mean the vaccines are indeed very very safe I mean, having multiple walkthrough and also i think it's because sometimes it's due to like the media coverage right mm -hmm. you know they report mm -hmm. about the death and people when they see it they, they forgot to think that they forget about like the thousands who are like safe from the vaccine, but when they see like a one or two, they'll be alarmed by it, right? right. So. And, and also, you know, the the common, the way we like we lots is this, right? When let's say you get a vaccine and then on your 
way out of the clinic, you accidentally walk into the door, you then say, well, the vaccine caused me to walk into the door, but it doesn't. <laughs> so when, when one thing follows another, whatever that went ahead need not always be the cause, right? It's just two things happen coincidentally. Um, and that, that's always difficult to sort out. So whatever that you read in the press, thoughts in the news or in social media, uh, isn't necessarily caused by vaccination. Okay. Moving on, Nicole. Yes. Uh, I think we have one more last. Uh, we have one last question from uh this list. Um, is to do with controls. So um, I guess we're all scientists, so we know. Uh, with any experiment, uh, a good control is very important. So how do we, I guess, in, 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 in the context of, you know, uh, vaccine development and clinical trials, how do we choose the right placebo, the right control? And, um, you know, um, will the control, the type of control, rather, chosen affect the results? Because I guess we have an example here is that the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, uh, in their study, they, their control is the meningitis vaccine. While uh, some other companies, they use like, you know, like saline as, as a control. So, um, yeah, I guess, you know, do you have any yeah. uh, comment on that? That's a, that's a great question. Actually, the, there is no um, right or wrong answer to this. This this is a decision that's taken uh, in discussion with the health re regulator. Now, ideally, you give, you give um, you're right, that the ideal control should be whatever that uh, is used to dilute the vaccine. So saline, something like that, uh, and, and should preferably be something inert. But there's also a school of thought saying that, you know, giving placebo to people which has no benefit is ethically questionable, right? Why, why should you volunteer for a trial knowing that the chance of getting doing no good or getting, you know, receiving no good from the trial is about 50%. Mm -hmm. So that's where some people then say, well, we shouldn't just use um, saline, we should give another vaccine so that even if you, know, you fall into a placebo arm, you can derive some benefit. So it's, it's not so much the science part, it's actually the ethics part that's, the, the, that's in question. Uh, there is no right or wrong answer. It really is a, a discussion that we need to have regulators and the ethics board. Mm, I see. Alright, to all our listeners, that's all for today's episode. We hope that Prof. Wee and ourselves have answered your questions and clarified any doubts about the vaccine. We truly apologize for the audio hiccup. Do stay tuned for the next episode where we'll be introducing the Luna COVID-19 vaccine co-developed by Prof. Wee. We'll also be discussing about some of the challenges faced during the development of the vaccine. Thank you for tuning in once again. Till then, stay curious! Thank you.